Well, let's return for a final time to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we will work through the final words of Jesus' public ministry, at least the final words in John's gospel. John chapter 12. When we come to chapter 13, we will find Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room. This happens immediately before his arrest and crucifixion. The four Gospels give us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. And John gives us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final night in Jerusalem. In fact, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all concern Jesus' final night in Jerusalem. So chapter 12 then concludes his public ministry. And here we are going to find sorrowful words of rejection in verses 36 through 43, but also words of hope in verses 44 through 50. So let's take up our reading in the middle of verse 36. We have rather bad verse division in verse 36. So right in the middle, we read these words. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we gave our attention last week to those verses. But now here are some words of hope. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Charles Simeon was a pastor in Cambridge. He was probably the most influential pastor in all of England, if not the entire evangelical world, 
in the, late, in the, in the early 19th century. And came, or, uh, Simeon lived through an era of bitter theological rivalry between Calvinists and Arminians. Now, that rivalry would not have been promoted nor even understood by John Calvin and Jacob Arminius themselves. The two theologians, in fact, never met. Jacob Arminius was four years old when John Calvin died. And Arminius believed that John Calvin was the greatest commentator that God ever gave to the church. He wrote, Next to the study of the scriptures, which I earnestly inculcate, I exhort my pupils to peruse Calvin's commentaries, which I extol in lofty terms. I affirm that he excels beyond comparison in the interpretation of scripture, that his commentaries ought to be more highly valued than all that is handed down to us by the library of the fathers. Now, my purpose today is not to analyze the theological controversy that eventually became associated with these two names, but rather to point to a solution proposed by Charles Simeon that has long intrigued me. Simeon warned his congregation against forsaking Scripture out of loyalty to a system. We dare not approach a passage and ask how a Calvinist or how an Arminian would interpret the passage. If my approach to a passage is, well, what's the Calvinist view, or what's the Arminian view, or what's the dispensational view, or what's the premillennial view, or what's the Lutheran view, the Baptist view, the Presbyterian view, then I'm likely going to skew the passage even before I begin to interpret it. The appropriate question is always, what does the text say? To put that another way, what did the original author mean? What did Christ mean when he spoke these words? John Calvin writes, It is an audacity akin to sacrilege to use the scriptures at a pleasure and to play with them as with a tennis ball. Yes, they had tennis in the 16th century, which many before have done. Listen to this. It is the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what he think he ought to say. Now, having said that, let's acknowledge that there are passages that a Calvinist or an Arminian will emphasize. And there are passages that certainly emphasize the sovereignty of God and passages that speak of the responsibility of man. And then there are others like the one that we just read that simultaneously emphasizes both. And what do you do with such passages? Well, I tried to give an example last week as we work through it. But listen to what Simeon wrote. And I dare say that his comments would be appreciated by both John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. Here's what he wrote. When I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostle exhorts me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself to that side of the question. And then he gives this analogy, and I think I've mentioned this to you one time previously. He writes, as wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet subserve a common end, so many truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally serve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. 
Well, that's a really intriguing illustration of what often happens when reading the Scripture. What do you think of the inner workings of a great big clock? If you were to take that clock apart, you would notice all these different gears. And as the teeth of one sprocket move counterclockwise, they intersect with another sprocket that moves the other direction. Right? One's going counterclockwise, and as it moves along, the other one goes clockwise. All right? The whole mechanism works, even though the gears carry you in different directions. And isn't it true that different passages tend to carry us in different directions? And so what you don't want to do is force a clock to turn clockwise when it's going counterclockwise or vice versa. Just let the whole plotline of Scripture work with the precision of a clock. And when a text turns you clearly in the direction of God's sovereignty, election, predestination, then simply embrace it. And when it turns you in the direction of human responsibility or obedience, then just embrace it. So what does our text say concerning people's belief in Jesus? Here we are at the end of his public ministry, and like, what happened? Did they embrace him? Well, verse 37, which we looked at last week, implies the people were obligated to believe on Jesus, especially after he performed all those signs. That's their responsibility, And John records seven distinct miracles that Jesus performed. The synoptics, of course, record many, many more. Nevertheless, the final clause of verse 37 offers a note of incredulity. Look at the text. They still did not believe in him. They were at fault. God does not force people to disbelieve. So verse 37 strikes a note of human responsibility. They failed to believe on Jesus. However, verses 38 through 40 take us in an entirely different direction, like another gear on the clock. They read as if people's disbelief was not only predicted in the Old Testament, but also those same predictions necessitated people's rejection of Jesus. Verse 39 says, therefore, they could not believe. And why not? Well, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Well, do you feel like you're turning in two different directions simultaneously? Like those wheels on a clock going in different directions. Like, they're responsible to believe. Well, they couldn't believe. Why? God hardened their heart. Last week, we investigated the Old Testament's extended commentary on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I do not plan to return to that discussion today. Other than to say, if this really, really troubles you and you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to just go back and listen to what we did when we went back to Exodus and looked at Pharaoh last week. All right? Well, let's just note again that these verses describe the rather bitter end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus did many signs, but the people refused to believe. And so God blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts, just as Isaiah predicted. And when God hardens a heart, he withdraws his conviction, and that heart turns to stone. These petrified hearts cannot see Jesus. 
as their Messiah, and they will see to it that he is crucified. And to think that unlike Pharaoh, the signs that they witnessed were miracles of healing, of feeding, of the restoration of creation. Pharaoh hardened his heart after witnessing signs of God's destruction and judgment. Jesus' contemporaries hardened their hearts after witnessing signs of God's grace. And you can't help but wonder whether their crime was much worse than Pharaoh's. They rejected the goodness and the grace of God. Now, have you ever noticed how often in Scripture, after reading discouraging, painful words of judgment, the Lord turns and offers us gracious words of hope? That's what happens as we continue to read We're going to slide off of one gear, turning us toward despair, and suddenly find ourselves going in a whole new direction today. That's what happens at the end of Jesus' ministry in John 12. There is a note of optimism in his final public sermon. Now granted, we're not quite sure what to make of the Jews in verses 42 through 43, Nevertheless, there is a bit of hope that transitions us to the gracious words of verses 44 and following. So look at verse 42. Here's that transition. Nevertheless, that's a transition word. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Well, that's positive. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what do you make of these people? Believers, unbelievers? That sounds like some of the Jews are coming around, but they're sort of stuck with their insecurity and pride, and it feels like you're standing there at the intersection between these two gears. Which way are we going to go? Again, there's a note of optimism in the word nevertheless. Not all the authorities had a heart that turned to stone, but who are these people? And the answer is we cannot say for sure, but let me give you two possibilities. All right? When we get to John chapter 19, old Nicodemus suddenly returns to the narrative. He's carrying with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. For a member of the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus, to identify with a corpse, particularly the corpse of a man viewed to be a common criminal, was unthinkable. He would never, ever do this. Likewise, another council member named Joseph of Arimathea suddenly finds the courage to come forward and request the body of Jesus for burial. Again, this is unthinkable. Now, we have no record that either one of these men spoke up when Jesus was twice put on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they were members of the Sanhedrin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us records of the two Sanhedrin trials that Jesus endured. But when you read those records, they feel very one-sided, like a lynch mob bent on securing the death of Jesus. No one's speaking up for him. There isn't even a hint of even partial support for Jesus. So assuming Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as council members were present, we don't even know that for sure, 
But assuming they were present at Jesus' trial, verses 42 through 43 would seem to describe them both, or at least men like them. Secretly, they believed in Jesus, but they weren't about to resist that tide of opposition that's about to come crashing against the shore. They are not going to resist the crucifixion of Jesus. But in the end, they swallow their pride and they identify with a corpse. And like the centurion standing by when Jesus died, they may have suddenly realized oh, we just killed the Son of God. Surely that man was the Son of God. Maybe they came to that verdict in that dark, dark night that descended over the cross. Or maybe after they heard that great voice when Jesus yielded up his spirit, which is very unusual. Crucifixion victims did not cry out with a loud voice. I've explained that previously. We don't know. But it seems that men like Nicodemus... And Joseph of Arimathea did indeed come around in the end. So, if there is a note of optimism in verses 42 through 43, is enough for Jesus to spontaneously and boldly declare a final verdict on his ministry, even among half-hearted believers? So, with a loud voice, Jesus will issue a final declaration before turning into the upper room to wash his disciples' feet, where he prepares for the darkest hour in human history. I can say it this way. If verses 36 through 41 turned us in a counterclockwise direction, verses 44 through 46 are suddenly going to turn us in a clockwise direction with three spontaneous whoevers. Look at verse 44. Whoever believes in me. Verse 45. Whoever sees me. And verse 46, whoever believes in me. That term, whoever, shows up 32 times in John's gospel. And in a majority of those occurrences, it refers to an open-ended invitation to whoever to come to Jesus. John 3, verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John eleven twenty five. whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, the whoever's of verses 44, 45, and 46 function less as an invitation to whoever than they do an explanation of what happens to whoever, but it's nevertheless the case that Jesus is not limiting at this point who can believe to a specific few people. He's simply acknowledging whoever. Well, whoever. That's his word. And contextually, he's speaking of these people who are on the fence. He's speaking to the many in verse 43, those among even the authorities who are finally maybe just beginning to believe. He's speaking to the many who fear the radical Pharisees and aren't quite ready to confess Jesus publicly. He's speaking of the many in verse 43 who still love the glory of men. And perhaps he's speaking to you because you've been on the fence for a very long time. And you think, well, maybe he could never accept me because I just haven't really confessed him yet. Whoever, that's who he's speaking to. He is speaking to men and women everywhere who are drawn to him but are not yet committed. So whoever you are, these are Jesus' final words to you of public ministry before he goes to his cross. And these words are, in one sense, a summary of the whole of John's gospel up to this point. 
So with that said, let's just work straight through his final exhortation, beginning with verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, all through John's gospel, Jesus has been insisting that he is from the Father. Way back in John 2, Jesus cleansed the temple in his Father's name. In John 3, Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was a teacher come from God, and Jesus picked up on his acknowledgement and pressed the matter further, I am from God. In John 4, Jesus told the woman of the well that the Father is seeking worshipers who embrace his Messiah, and he is that Messiah. In John 5, after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus entered into a lengthy dialogue concerning his identity with the Father. The Father, Jesus says, loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. In fact, Jesus says the Father wants all men to honor the Son just like they honor the Father. In John 6, Jesus acknowledges that he is the true manna sent from the Father to sustain our lives forever. All right, I think you're getting the point. We could go right back through John's Gospel, chapter by chapter by chapter, and we would understand how every chapter pressurizes the statement in verse 44. To believe in Jesus is to embrace the Father who sent him. Now, verse 45 then reiterates the same truth, emphasizing true spiritual sight. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And Jesus, of course, is not referring to mere physical sight. Many saw Jesus, witnessed his miracles, observed his character and interactions with people, and nevertheless rejected him. He's not talking about merely seeing the incarnation. But there were some who saw that there was more to Jesus than first met the eye. They saw that he really, truly was from the Father. And we had a very lengthy demonstration of this great truth back in John chapter 9. That was the chapter where Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And the irony of the passage, of course, was enormous. The Pharisees had seen Jesus perform miracles constantly, over and over and over again, but they could not see him for who he was. And just as in verse 42, they agreed to cast out of the synagogue anyone who confessed Jesus. That was chapter 9. If you believe on him, you're going out of the synagogue. On the other hand, you have this man who was born blind. And he had never seen Jesus, and yet came to see that he was from God. So let's just recall that scene for just a moment. If you recall, Jesus spat on the ground. He made this little clay mixture of mud and clay and put it in the man's eyes and told him to go wash. And Jesus did not heal that man immediately, which is highly unusual. In fact, Jesus sent him across town to a pool very far away, the Pool of Siloam, much farther than the Pool of Bethesda, and down a steep embankment where he washed and came seen. And as the chapter advanced, if you recall, Jesus disappeared. And he let the man figure out who Jesus truly was. All the while, the Pharisees persisted in their disbelief. 
And the man, if you recall, originally did not even know whether Jesus was a sinner. He's like, I don't even know if he's a sinner or not. Of course, there were prophets who performed miracles who were sinners, but he didn't know if Jesus was a sinner or not. And then he figured out that Jesus must be some sort of prophet. And then finally, through a series of interrogations where the Pharisees are bent on denying the miracle ever happened, the man just keeps on thinking it through, and this is what he said. All right? Verse 30 of chapter 9, And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he had opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That's true. All the Old Testament, there's never a record of this miracle. And here's what he concluded. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. All right? And that's precisely what verse 45 is all about. And whoever sees me, like the blind man, sees him... Who sent me? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind man received not only physical sight, but he had the spiritual sight to see Jesus for who he truly was. He was sent from the Father. All that happened before Jesus showed back up on the scene and told him who he really was. The man received spiritual sight. Now, verse 46 is going to develop this truth even further. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And again, what John is doing here is summarizing a theme that we've seen all the way through his gospel. If you recall from chapter 1, Jesus was introduced as the Logos, the life, and the light. John writes of John the Baptist in John 1 and verse 8, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He writes of Jesus in John 1, 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And again in John 9, the apostle devoted a whole chapter to that single miracle of opening those blind eyes. But that whole chapter was in fact a further illustration of a discourse that Jesus preached back in John 8, I am the light of the world. What does that look like? Well, read chapter 9. I am the light of the world. Light is a universal symbol for understanding, for intelligence, for wisdom, for insight. To live in darkness is to live in ignorance. And Jesus comes like a beacon of light into our dark world. Matthew also described the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry in a most memorable way. Following his introduction to Jesus, Matthew begins narrating his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4. But he does so by quoting Isaiah's prophecy as having been fulfilled. Here's what he says. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Jesus just broke into our world like light in the darkness. A dawning light on the horizon. That's how Isaiah, that's how Matthew, that's how John described Jesus' ministry. And the fact is, we probably don't really appreciate the dawn the way people did through most of human history. We get out of bed and we flip the light switch, right? And our room just floods with light. 
Well, there's a really big difference between the available light at 6 o'clock in the winter and 6 o'clock in the summer. You know that. But we don't really pay much attention because we have a light switch. You just flip the light on. But when you have to wait for the dawn, 365 days a year, the breaking of light across the horizon is a really powerful image. It's the only way to light up our whole world. We need the dawn. People quite literally waited for the dawn. When the sun's embers just faded into the western night sky, it was just dark. Just dark as could be. That's most of human history. And Jesus suddenly just breaks into our dark world like the sun just coming up over the eastern horizon. And in the words of verse 46, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, let me say just a word to the many of you, myself included, who grew up in Christianity, who grew up in the light. I've had many students of the years who were raised in Christian homes, and Christian schools, and Christian youth groups. They attended Christian summer camps. They, they grew up in the context of Christian culture. But as they enter their adult years and make the transition from high school to college or college to the workplace, they begin to really have considerable doubts. In fact, this is, this is really, really common. I, w- I would say probably 95% of my students at some point have really dealt with this. In 17 years in the classroom, it is easily the number one issue I've run into. I mean, nothing compares to it. And I've, I've mentioned this to you before. But there's a, there's a pattern to those encounters, when a person has lived his or whole, her, her, her life in the light, so to speak, in Christianity, in the culture, it sometimes can be very, very difficult to appreciate just how dark the darkness is. It's like the old saying about a fish that doesn't appreciate the water until he's pulled up out of it. Or vice versa, we appreciated the oxygenated atmosphere that we live in and when we're plunged in the water. It's like, get me out of here. I've got to go breathe. All right? And so for many, many Christians who grew up in Christianity, gospel light is it's like the air that we breathe. It just surrounds us. It's our whole culture. And frankly, I can't tell you when I heard the gospel for the first time. I couldn't say. I don't remember not hearing the gospel. I mean, I heard the gospel from my earliest days. I, I heard it in the womb, I'm sure. All right? We, we can almost become unconscious of how our gospel of our, of our gospel saturated environment until we're actually deprived of it. Now, what I have done on several occasions with a doubting student is to simply send her or him out into the darkness. This may sound strange to you, but this is exactly what I've done. And I want to tell you about three students, all of whom grew up in Christian homes and attended Christian churches their whole lives and attended Christian schools and were just you know, your perfect little Sunday school kids. And I, I think I've told one or two of these stories before, but I, they really are worth repeating because they speak to many, many of us. I had a student one time who was wondering whether she should try out Buddhism. And she spent her whole life in a Christian home. And so I gave her some Buddhist literature to read, and I told her I would discuss it with her. And I gave her some very basic questions to ask of the Buddha and to see whether his answers were satisfying. And so she went away, and she came back the following week, and she said, I am not interested in Buddhism. Great. There's no light there. I knew there was no light there. 
You ask Buddha all kinds of questions. You know what he says? I don't answer those questions. He literally says, I don't want to answer those questions. I have a piece that I have my students read. And the Buddha says, there's only one question I want to answer, and that's why do we suffer? And his answer is terrible. I had a student who wondered about becoming a Muslim. He grew up in a very strong, strong Christian environment, a very strong home. He walked in the light his whole life. So I assigned him readings from the Quran. And I said, here's the questions you want to ask of Muhammad. And he quickly gave up the idea of becoming a Muslim. I had a student who took a history of philosophy class. Some of you might remember him because he actually was a member of our church several, several years ago before he moved away. At the beginning of the class, he asked for some supplemental reading. And by the way, he again, very, very strong Christian home. And so I mentioned to him a book by an atheist philosopher, and I explained, okay, this guy's not a Christian, but he can, he does explain philosophical concepts really, really well, like with a great deal of precision. And uh, so I'm not endorsing him, but if you want to just find out a little bit more about philosophy, you can read that. When the class was over, he came to see me, and he confessed. He says, when I came into the class, I was determined to find something other than Christianity to believe. That was my goal. I was going to find something other than Christianity because I'm done with Christianity. And he really hoped that atheists was going to give him some sort of coherent worldview. And he literally told me, I, I can quote him directly, after two weeks he said, I realized there was nowhere else to go. There was nowhere else to go. Right? You just sent him out to the darkness. I knew it was dark over there. I knew you'd come back. And he said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. In one class, I asked my students to choose any worldview or religion they want. And to see how that particular worldview solves the problem of evil and suffering. Does it do a better job than Christianity? To the best of my knowledge, no student has ever found another worldview even remotely tempting on this point. Because no one solves the problem of evil like Jesus Christ. Friends, it's Christianity that makes sense of our world. If you are willing to accept the light that Christ shines into our darkness, so you've got to stare him in the face and embrace that light. I'm going I'm I'm to go off my manuscript here for just a moment, but last week after the service, Brother Neptune said something that's intrigued me all week long, and I didn't have a chance to follow up with him this morning. But he said sometimes it's like, it's like when you're looking at Jesus, it's like looking at the sun, right? And you just, you, you want to turn away. You don't, you don't want to look at that sun. That's what the Pharisees had to do. We have to embrace the sun and all that light. And so you turn from the sun and you go into blindness. You know, you don't want the light of the sun. And that's the way it is with Jesus. You've you got to step out and look at Jesus face to face and be blinded by all that light. Let him expose all the sin in your life, all right? But you will find that he really, truly is the light of the world. I'm not sure if that's what Brother Neptune meant, but it was very, very intriguing to me. I should follow up with him afterwards. Anyway, all right? What we need to do most is just, just keep on listening to Jesus' words. Just let his words just transform even those dark, dark recesses of our minds. Remember the words of John 1 and verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, listen to what else Jesus says about his words in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
Now, wait a minute. Does that surprise you? Shouldn't it say, I will judge him? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, again, this verse may confuse us if we're not careful. On the one hand, Jesus wants us to hear his words. Well, why? Because he has come to save the world. That's what he said. So where's the confusion? Well, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world. But wait a minute. Jesus said back in John 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I did not come to judge the world. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Is he contradicting himself? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus is actually speaking about two different advents. That's the key. In the first advent, Jesus came to offer his life as an atonement for our sin. He did not come to sit on a throne. He came to save the world. He came to die on the cross. He came not as a judge, but to be judged for our sins. The light, the Savior, the Redeemer has come. So just go ahead and embrace the light. Embrace the words of Jesus and you will not be judged. He speaks truth. But what happens if you reject him? Well, then keep reading verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Well, who's that? Or what is that? The word that I have spoken will judge him but notice the time frame on the last day. That's a reference to the second advent. So you'd better believe the words that Jesus spoke in his first advent, or else you'll be judged by them when he returns. And again, the last day is a reference to his second coming. And when he returns, those who did not receive the light of his first advent did not embrace his words, will be judged by those very same words. So let's be clear, the words of Jesus can save, but those same words can condemn. Same words. You embrace them, you're saved, you reject them, you will be condemned. To embrace the teaching of Jesus is to find life, And to reject the words of Jesus is to find only judgment. And why are his words then so crucial? Does Jesus have some sort of misguided view of his own teaching? Well, no, just keep reading. Verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, referring to everything that he spoke, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So again, Jesus' words are one and the same as the words of the Father. He has been insisting on that all the way through John's Gospel. What would the Father say? Listen to Jesus. To embrace the words of Jesus is to embrace the words of the Father. To reject the words of Jesus is to reject the words of the Father. And again, do you recall that voice out of heaven? That voice that has been so mysteriously quiet through the Gospels, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Don't come to me. Listen to Jesus. He is the perfect revelation of the Father. 
So friends, with these words, we have reached the end of Jesus' public ministry. And let's conclude where we concluded last week with Jesus' invitation to whoever. If you're wondering whether you're elect, if you're wondering whether your eyes have been judicially blinded, if you're fearful that, well, maybe I'm not predestined to glory like these other people, let, let me just encourage you Okay, embrace that gear that's going the other direction. Maybe you think, well, I just have too much pride, too much sin to ever come to Jesus. Maybe you think, well, I'm too indecisive to ever come to Jesus. Well, friend, maybe you're like one of those rulers in verse 43 who love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Maybe you refuse to speak a word of defense for Jesus. Think of Nicodemus. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe you're like one of those half-hearted rulers of the Sanhedrin that just was quiet, and your silence implies your consent for his crucifixion. Maybe you're simply afraid and ashamed to come to Jesus publicly. Well, guess what? The whoever that Jesus is speaking of is you. In the context, Jesus is talking to these half-hearted authorities in verses 42 through 43, even authorities like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who, who apparently gave no resistance at all to his cross. And he cried out with a loud voice, Whoever believes in me, whoever sees me, whoever believes in me, so friend, if that's you, just go ahead and believe. What is Jesus' answer to you? Here it is, whoever you are. Believe. Come into the light. And when you embrace the light, you will see that Jesus has come from the Father. The words that Jesus of Nazareth spoke are the words of the Father. Nothing less and nothing more than the very words of God. And his words to you, in the words of 50, are, here's his words, eternal life. So we pray together. Father, as we have come to the end of Jesus' public ministry, I ask, Lord, that there would be no one here who would remain indefinitely on the fence about Jesus. We pray that your spirit would convict him or her and nudge them along in your own good time and draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.